So it, it feels very lovely to be back at New York Inside. It's been a little while. And um, I have just come from South Africa. So I was at Tanisra and Kitty Sorrow's retreat center outside of Underberg in the Drakenberg Mountains. And their retreat center is nestled up against a very powerful and very sacred mountain and up against uh, a region which is, uh, it's like a national park. In fact, it's a world heritage site. So even more than something that is recognized as of natural beauty to the country, it's recognized as of, of world significance on the world sphere of these kinds of things. And I've known Tanisra and Kitty Saro for, well, since 1989 when I first went to the monastery in England. I met them both there. And uh, Tanisra in particular has been a tremendous support and a very good friend uh, over these last several years since I've been back in the United States. And so when she said that she was going to be on retreat herself and inviting me to come and others to come and join her, I was very interested to do that. And they have a very small center on about 40 acres of land at the base of this incredibly powerful and very sacred mountain. And I am one who's very sensitive and responsive to land and to the power of land. And because I know and respect and love Tanisara and feel a sense of, of easy access when I'm in contact with powerful nature, I thought this would be a really fabulous opportunity. And so I went, and it's the first time I've ever been on the African continent, and so I was expecting um, to be in a, a very different culture. And Underberg is very rural South Africa, and so just driving through to get there, you know, seeing a pregnant woman on the road hitchhiking is not a common sight that I see in Colorado, Colorado Springs. And, you know, seeing the kinds of dwellings that some of the people were living in, it just impressed upon me that in this rural part of South Africa, the, the level of resource is less than what I'm commonly used to most of the time. I see people living in houses, you know, with roofs and windows and doors. And some of these houses didn't have all of those things. And so it was um, just the drive getting to the retreat center had an impact on me in terms of the way people were living in that area and some of the, you know, the possible significance of what that might mean. And then after being there for a few days, there were these incredible winds that got stirred up. So in the Drakenberg, they're the, what's known as the bergs, these winds that come through, and they're fierce, you know, moving at, I think the winds were steady at around 40 miles an hour and gusts up to 60 miles an hour. And so the, the structures were shaking 
and the, it felt like there was a chance that the roofs might blow off, you know. So you're sitting in a, in a, in a building meditating and there's this huge wind that is agitating the building and it's, it's very challenging to relax in a situation where it feels like at any moment the roof might be blowing off. And as it turned out over the week or so where these incredible winds were blowing, the winds did blow off one of the solar panels. And so in the middle of the night, I heard this huge noise and then all of this pouring water like there was this waterfall. And so I looked outside and you know, the, the, the solar panel looked like some kind of a, a mangled architecture that was hanging from the roof and half of it was inside the room where one of the retreatants had been in. So I went outside to find out if he was okay and, and he was okay, but he needed to find another space to live in. And so, you know, the, the day was simple with, as in a normal retreat context with, you know, morning meditation and chanting and the facilities, the buildings were quite close to each other and we all were taking care of most of the duties in terms of washing up and cleaning and preparing vegetables and all of those kinds of things. And so the, the kind of um, texture and fabric of relatedness was very rich and strong in this context where we were dependent on each other for the kind of basic things to happen. So it wasn't um, uh, like in some other retreat centers where there's a lot of staff that take care of everything and, and you just show up for the meditation. The, there was a lot that was needed for us to do because there were only two people who were there as managers. One of the managers was making sure the solar panels was getting fixed and the other manager was the cook, you know. So after these huge winds, you know, settled down, then Tanisra was needed in order to do the research uh, to get the paperwork to, for the insurance and then to get the builders to come to, to fix the solar panels. And in South Africa, it's, it's different than North America. So the company that had the solar panels was nine hours away. So it took them about a month before they could come and fix the solar panels. And the solar panels was the only way there could be hot water in, that, in those two buildings. So the kind of things that we're normally used to, which is electricity and power and hot water and you know, calling on the telephone and having people being able to come and respond in a, a few days, all of these things were not assumptions that we could rely on in this context. So it's winter time in South Africa now. And so in the nights it would get cold. You know, it was uh, somewhere between 20 and 40 degrees at night. And the, none of the buildings were insulated. And so, you know, it's cold when it's not insulated. And so you feel the cold. You know, so 
I had all these robes and fleeces and three hats and gloves and three socks and I would bundle up and it was just very lovely to feel warm. And then in the day the sun would come out and it would get it would get 75 or 85 degrees and so I needed to put on all my thin clothes because if I had on all my fleecy stuff and my thick stuff then I would just be way too hot. So the simple things like relationship to the elements there was really prominent because it was strong and it was constantly changing. So then after a while with the with these huge winds that settled down then we got these incredible mist that came in. And the mist came in it was so thick you couldn't see a hundred feet. Okay? And it soaked everything. Everything was completely saturated. Now me being a person who loves nature it was a real priority for me to spend time on the mountain and in the few weeks from the winds until the mist I had found a cave and this cave was about a half an hour's walk away and so this area was this mountain that was very steep and it was covered with grass and the, the mountain had gorges and in the gorges were little um, streams and creeks and trees and the native animals that were walking in that area were eland and there were baboon there were some leopards but nobody ever got to see the leopards so the eland were really really smart I got to understand and appreciate how smart the eland were because walking on the thick grass without a track was really exhausting. You got tired really quickly. But the eland picked really lovely paths and when they made a path it was a lot easier to walk on their paths. So I got in the habit of looking for the eland paths as a way of exploring the mountain. And that's how I found the cave, which was this incredible, huge overhang in this gorge that had all of these trees and ferns and everything that was growing in it. And so it was like moving from a savanna into a tropical rainforest. It was a completely different landscape and it was very close. So I went to the cave when the mist came and when I came back I was completely soaking wet and so these simple things of being in relationship with nature and being in relationship with elements and being in relationship with each other was really um, apparent you know there was a couple times when somebody didn't show up for their yogi job and then the rest of us had to cover and it was really apparent how as a group of people we were a team that relied on each other and when one person wasn't well or able to show up then everybody else felt it and covered for that so it was really um, lovely way that the fabric of relatedness was woven by the degree to which we were dependent on each other.
Now, many of us, myself included, for many, many, many years, has been interested in meditation. And my teaching or training around meditation is, is that it's something that you do. You go on retreat, you come to New York Insight, you spend time at home, it's something that you do. And because it's something that we do, it's a choice. So tonight, I can imagine that every single one of you had at least three and maybe five other choices that you could have made rather than coming here tonight. And I imagine that the whole community of New York Inside is actually quite a lot larger than the people who are in this room. Which means that all the people who are not here chose to do something different than come tonight. Yeah. Going on retreat is a choice. And increasingly, as the pressures of our world get more intense, the ability to carve out the time and make it a priority becomes more challenging choice with financial struggles that people are facing and time limitations and pressures at work and obligations with family. The choice of going on retreat becomes more challenging. And in the same way, the choice of sitting and meditating sometimes is constantly pressurized and squeezed with the level of duties that need to be attended to in the day. Have you noticed that? Yeah. So when we're relating to meditation as an activity defined by what we do where we are and what posture that we're assuming it's a choice now I would like to invite you now to change gears a little and start listening not only with your ears listen with your heart listen with your feelings listen with the soles of your feet listen from your back. Listen from the nape of your neck. Listen from every cell in your body. And as you begin to listen in this way, notice if there's an increase in a sense of aliveness. Notice 
if there's a change in the quality of interest, notice if the amount of what you are perceiving stays the same or changes. Notice if you can feel the presence of everyone in this room also listening. Notice what happens when we change our view about what listening is and how we experience ourselves and the world around us when we listen with every part of who we are. What happens to the body listening this way? What happens to the thoughts when we listen this way? What happens to the sense of being divided and compartmentalized when we listen? in this way. And so in the experience of moving into awareness, awareness that is not located through one sense door, Awareness that includes everything. Rejects nothing. Doesn't ask it to be different from the way it is. How does it feel to be awakeness? So in this experience or consciousness or quality of awareness that suffuses mind, heart, and body. I'm going to ask another question or make an invitation. Stop being aware. 
Can you stop being aware? Stop being aware. Is it a choice you can make to stop being aware? So when we shift from meditation as being activity based on posture, based on circumstance, based on specific activities in particular places. And meditation begins to be awakeness, beingness, aliveness. Is it a choice that you can stop What happens for me when I have contact with mountains, sacred land, is I have easy access to this beingness, to this awakeness, to this aliveness that welcomes, that includes, that allows, that doesn't separate, where there are no problems. And then I have to come off the mountain communicate with my mom and respond to concerns on the Awakening Truth Board and figure out what's happening with the retreat and deal with the this and the that and the this and the that. And there's something that happens in my own conditioning where if I am not staying connected to that awakeness and that beingness and that aliveness in those activities, I begin to contract and separate and pull back away from awakeness and beingness into doing and getting a task done. And when I am doing and getting a task done, it feels like I am here in time and space trying to get there. And when I'm here trying to get there, It's not easy access to aliveness and beingness and awakeness that includes everything and doesn't separate. But when I go into communication with others or tasks or washing dishes or drying dishes or pulling them away or communicating with the board or talking about logistics or planning, being rooted and grounded in awakeness and beingness. Then like on the mountain, there is no problem. 
I am not locating myself in time and space trying to get there. I am here. I am here. I am here. I am here doing just this, doing just this, doing just this. Just like on the mountain, I can only take one step at a time. I can never take more than one step at a time on the mountain. Now Salwazi, who was in this last CDL, came and spent a week at uh, Damagiri on retreat. And he's an African-American man, and this is also the first time that he's been to the African continent, and I could just feel what that would be like. And so I wanted to share with him the experience of going up this mountain. Now this mountain is like not a wimp of a mountain. It's unbelievably steep. In fact, I don't know that I have ever been on anything that is steeper. And there's no path. You have to kind of follow the Elan trails and go through caves and cross over gorges. And it's just like, it's really wild. So I asked Salwazi if he wanted to join me and another of the laywomen up to the top of the mountain. And he said yes. And the night before we left, it had snowed. So we got up to the steepest part of the mountain and there was snow on the mountain, which means that it's slipperier and more difficult than if there wasn't snow. And for me, it was incredibly clear making that journey up the mountain. I had no doubt I wanted to go. I had no clarity that I would be able to get to the top. I had made provisions. I had a, my backpack. There was food. I had hot water. I had my three hats and my gloves, and I had my down vest. And all I could do was take the best care that I could to prepare and take it one step at a time. But without having any doubt about this is what I wanted to be doing, my energy wasn't getting spread out and dispersed. So it was very focused. And because my energy and attention was very focused, then I made good choices with where I placed my foot. And on this mountain, making a good choice about where you placed your foot was really a good thing. Because if you didn't make a good choice, you could twist an ankle or twist a knee or fall down or slip or scrape yourself or all of those things. But I didn't know until we got to the top if we were going to get to the top. But that didn't matter, because I wasn't interested in getting there. I was interested in being here and sharing this experience with my companions and taking care that they were okay on the mountain. It was exhilarating. Absolutely exhilarating. 
to know, oh yeah, this is how you do it. Very simple. But we get so smart, we make it so complicated. <laughs> we fall. Now, one of the challenges that I experience as a human being, and see if I have any resonance with others, is that there's times when things land that are just so evocative. It's like my pain body gets activated and, and becomes a predominant experience in my consciousness. Does anyone know about that? You've read about it in a book somewhere. <laughs> so in the midst of this experience of being on retreat where there was so much joy and comfort and ease and bliss and nothing was a problem and things were very clear and all kinds of very profound questions that I had were becoming clarified, something landed and my pain body got activated. And while this was happening, the roofers who'd come to fix the thatch that got messed up from the winds were on the roof and they were using an angle grinder sawing, I think, the roofing tiles to hammer them onto the roof. And when I'm sensitive, my capacity for tolerance for noise diminishes considerably. And angle grinders are have a particular like penetrating um, quality to their sound, which was totally aggravating. It was like painful to listen to. So pain body got activated, sensitivity to noise increased, my sense of contracting and not wanting to be with this stuff was really strong. And so I just took off for the mountain. And the mountain, as the mountain has been for this whole trip, was very lovely. Because the mountain didn't ask me to be different. The mountain didn't ask me to feel different. The mountain just welcomed me exactly as I was. And as the mountain welcomed me exactly as I was, I could welcome myself exactly as I was. And as I was welcoming myself, I began to hold space for the pain body and what had happened and why it hurt and what needed holding. I didn't need to fix it. I needed to hold it. Hold awareness around what had happened until it landed and settled and came back into easefulness. I went back to the cave. I sat for a while in the cave. And I came back. And the angle grinder was still going. And I didn't hear it.
because my system had shifted so that it was no longer irritating. My system wasn't contracting and pulling away from it. It was able to receive it without it being an impingement. What is really important for me, has been really important for me, is to be appropriate to what is needed in the present moment and not to superimpose an idea about how I am supposed to be on top of reality. And so the idea that I should resolve this in meditation, sitting on my cushion while the angle grinder is going, is an idea. And what was needed was some caring and holding and responsiveness to the fact that I wasn't managing the sound, that I needed to be in a place that was quieter to be able to care for what had happened so that I could come back into a place where it wasn't a problem. It's very quick when I was responsive. It's very long when I battle, when I fight when I demand reality to be other than the way that it is. Because I have a bright idea about how it is supposed to be. Or how I'm supposed to be. Or what retreats are supposed to be. Or what meditation is supposed to be. And pull away from what's actually happening and not respond to myself, the situation, or the needs that are at hand. But for me, the mountain is like nectar. It's like ambrosia. It's like absolute medicine. It's totally, absolutely responsive. And brings me right back into that place of being a responsive in beingness, in awakeness, in aliveness, right here, right now with what's going on. Having been a nun in these monasteries in Amravati and Chithurst for many, many, many years, we had chanting that we would do every morning and every evening. And when I left England three and a half years ago and I came back to the States, I didn't want to have anything to do with chanting. I didn't want to have anything to do with bowing. I didn't want to have anything to do with images. I didn't want to have anything to do with any of it. It was like, back off, you know? Leave me alone, give me some space. So I go to Tanisara and Kitty Saro's place, and what is there? There's chanting in the morning and the evening, and there's bowing, and there's pictures of all of these monks, and there's Buddha images everywhere. And I thought, I hate the morning chanting. (laughs) But I did it anyway. 
So hating the morning chanting <laughs> was an opportunity to watch what happens around pulling back from something that has been part of my life in the past for a very long time and became associated with something that no longer felt like it served me. And what was the hating? Was the thing that was no longer serving me the thing that I hated? Was it the chanting that I hated? Was it my not ability to make choice around it what I hated? What was it that I hated? So I got to play with holding my own autonomy sometimes not chanting because I didn't want to chant and seeing what that felt like and if I could do that from a place of peacefulness or a place of neener 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 I'm not chanting <laughs> and what the bowing felt like And Tanisara, as many of you know, is quite an exemplary practitioner and very, very wise. And she knows all of this territory. And so it felt very safe for me to be going through all of this with her presence. Because it's familiar ground. All of it's familiar ground for her. And she's very loving in her ability to hold the space for people to do what they need to do. So it felt very, very safe to do all of this. But also underneath this was this other thing which was really, really much more complex and, and, and rich. Which was that, you know, when I left England... I pulled away from the Thai forest tradition because they were making decisions that I couldn't endorse. And I knew that if I was staying identified with that tradition, then as I moved out of that, I was going to have incredible consequences to pay with this community not being able to reconcile the choices that I was making. So my pulling back was a very clear statement of I want to be able to make the choices that I know that I need to make and not have to deal with the place that they can't shift to or move to because of their own politics, all right? But in pulling away from being officially connected, I also did some kind of hairy carry on my heritage. It's like I didn't locate myself in the richness of what I've come from. I just cut it out. So here is Tanisara and Kitty Saro in South Africa having created a retreat center based on the model and the training of the Thai forest tradition as well as their exposure to some other masters and their teachings that they have. With this sitting in their own seat of it doesn't matter. It's completely erroneous views whether you are officially considered in or out of the lineage. This 
is our heritage that we own, embody, use, love, rejoice in, celebrate, and have as a reference point to the way we practice. Stepping outside of the politics, reclaiming what is true, what is beautiful, what is right, what is nourishing, what is serving, and living from that space. Very powerful and very moving. Very moving. So Dalila asked me however many months ago what kind of topic I wanted to give for this retreat. And I had heard somebody say this thing about relationship is mandatory. Meditation is optional. And I thought, that sounds great. We can use that. And then the last week of the retreat, I thought, what on earth was I thinking about? <laughs> <laughs> How am I going to talk about this as a topic for a meditation uh, group? How does it relate? How does it make any sense? And then it came to me that the experience on the retreat was actually an expression of just that the connection with the elements and with each other as being something that was totally unavoidable. And yet the times of meditation and the postures of meditation and the coming to meditation as an activity was something we could choose. And because I love the mountain, there were times when I chose the mountain rather than the sitting meditation. But when we change our frame of reference from meditation as activity and doing and posture and place and location to beingness, to aliveness, to awareness, to awakenness, is it a choice? Is it a choice that we can actually make where we say, no, I am not willing to do that, or I don't have time for that, or that is not possible right now? So for myself, there is this blending of the richness of the teachings, which is the teachings of path, that requires effort, application, and time. And understanding how to use that in a way that evokes and strengthens and stabilizes these qualities of aliveness, of awakeness, of beingness, of presence, which is timeless, not dependent on posture not dependent on place, not dependent on circumstance, and use the awakeness, the beingness, the aliveness, the awareness 
back into the instructions, back into the Satipatthana instructions, back into the meditation with the breath, back into understanding path, effort, posture, formal practice, so that these are mutually supportive rather than antagonistic. The meditation practices that we are doing are not keeping us away from beingness, aliveness, awakeness. The beingness, aliveness, awakeness is not separating ourselves and divorcing ourselves from the meditation. But we're not getting mixed up as to what is what, where we forget that our quality of aliveness, our capacity of beingness, our presence, our ability to listen, to be, to be awake with all of our body, heart, and mind is pure meditation. and pure relationship. So I'd like to close here and change the format, invite comments and questions and discussions and see how you're all doing with all of this. This has left you completely confused or A little bit more clear. Yes, please. What you said makes a lot of sense where I am now. I am trying, not to try to be friends, to be here and not there. It's very, very important to me. And I find the times when I'm trying to find timelessness. I'll sit and act as if I'm a tree. Because the only thing I know that lives inside time is the human mind. So I try to step away from the human mind and just be timeless and let things be as they are. And I find the times that I can't find that feeling to be, I won't say painful, but difficult. Because I'm aware of what can be and what I wish to be all the time. Evasive because I'm kind of new to, to meditation, but I, I realize that meditation is more than just sitting. It's alive. And I, I drive a bus to the city, so I'm alone sitting for hours at a time. And I try to be here. Not down there, not back there, not out of traffic, not on lunch. And I'm getting it. But when I don't have it, it's like I try not to grasp, but I want it. So it's like awareness can be two-edged sword, until you get it. You seem to have gotten it. Awareness is not a two-edged sword. What's a two-edged sword is grasping. 
So we have a memory of having been in a place where there's no problem, where you feel relaxed and resting in a space that's timeless. And that memory becomes a problem when we want it and that's not there. It's not the awareness that's two-edged. Okay? It's the wanting something that's not present which is two-edged. Okay? So when we're when you're sitting or on your bus and you have that sense of just being completely present, there's no problem. When you're sitting on that bus and you're wanting to feel like there's no problem and you're not feeling like there's no problem, then there's a problem. Okay? But the way out is not through wanting. The way out is through awareness. The way out is through bringing attention to what is present right now. And what's present in that moment is wanting. So wanting then becomes the object of awareness. What does wanting feel like? Become incredibly curious about wanting. How do you know you're wanting? How can you locate wanting? Do you feel it in your jaw? Do you feel it in your guts? Do you feel it in the back of your neck? Do you feel it in the texture of the thoughts that you have? Do you feel How do you know that you're wanting? So when you dial up curiosity around what it is that's actually happening in the present moment, the curiosity increases the awareness. The awareness investigates what is actually happening. The investigation allows what's happening to reveal itself. You can then learn how to soften around the grasping, find spaciousness, how to relax around the pulling back, how to come forward and meet. All of these things are stepping stones into awakeness, aliveness, beingness, and no problem. Yes, please. Yeah. Hi. I hadn't thought of this, but just leapfrogging off that, um, at least for me personally, it's really hard for me to get or to want to get real curious about loneliness. I want to run, I want to push, I want to get anywhere but here. If the here is feeling lonely, I want to do everything but what you just told this gentleman. I don't, so if you could please Maybe you would just say the same thing, but I can't or don't want. It seems, I guess, the pain body, it seems so painful that I am not able. And it seems, in my mind, that the only thing that would cure the loneliness would be to have another and often there is no other da, 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 da. so so w my experience with this has been um, quite profound so I left a community that I had been connected to for 20 years and went and lived on my own in a community of practitioners that had very little understanding of monastics or support so I went from a, a huge 
infrastructure that had international and national filaments to being totally on my own. Okay. So my explorations with loneliness have taken me into some really um, deep territory. And it has not been easy. In my explorations of loneliness, what I have also found is, is that slightly different to what I was saying to with this gentleman is that there is something very deep and very early that's connected to that. The, the longing to be seen, to be held, to be supported, to be validated, to be safe. And I can connect that to, for myself with very, very, very early childhood stuff where there wasn't quite the right conditions needed for those needs to get met. So when I drop into that space, I'm dropping into an extremely early consciousness of longing for support that wasn't present at a time when I needed it. You don't need curiosity. What's needed is something that's big enough to hold that wanting and stay present with it. So when I would experience these excruciating periods of loneliness that had me in tears, I'd go to my rocks. So where I'm living in Colorado is right next to a place of spectacular beauty and power. I didn't try and get curious about the loneliness. Forget that. I went to the rocks and I'd press my body into the rocks and I'd let the rocks hold me. And as I could feel the rocks holding me, then I could begin to relax the tension around the desperate not wanting to feel what I was feeling. And as I let the rocks hold me, my mind would go into that space of awakeness. And in awakeness, then the loneliness and the not wanting wasn't a problem. But there was absolutely no way I could get there directly with curiosity. I had to go to a place where something was big enough and holding enough that I felt received with all of the intensity of what I was bringing to those rocks. Then it could release. The rocks, these rocks, are 160 million year old rocks. There's nothing that I have brought to them that has shaken them. Nothing. Now, everybody's thing isn't rocks. But you have to find what is your thing. And use it. Make use of it. May I ask a serious follow-up? Yeah. I am lucky enough, living here in New York City, to live five blocks from my 
five minutes from Central Park and my favorite rock. So I resonate very much with what you talk about, about nature. My serious question, though, is let's say it's the middle of the night. I cannot physically go to my rock. So when I came back from England, you know, what I was dealing with was so intense, I don't have any language to describe it. It was huge. I got rocks this big and brought them into my house. And in the cold season, I'd put them on the furnace so that they were hot. And in the hot season, I'd let them be cold. And I slept with them. No joke. And I had rocks in my pocket. So if I couldn't go to the rocks, I brought the rocks to me. I'm not joking. You know, and so the, I had big rocks. They were big rocks. I could slide them into my belly and lean against them on my back and so that I felt the rocks were there. And honestly, I have no idea what kind of a lockup unit I would have been in if I hadn't had rocks. <laughs> you laugh. No joke. It was really strong stuff I was navigating and it really helped ground me. So you have to be creative <laughs> and outside of the box. But New York is a little bit challenging because you've got a lot more buildings and concrete and cars and stuff like that than you've got rocks. But a little one you can keep in your pocket. And then with the contact with the little one it can remind you of the big one and how you feel when you are next to that big rock. Okay? Yes, please. Yeah. Can you pass the mic? Thank you. Um, I've had experience in, um, and I've learned very much to to be, is that good? No. Do you have it on? I mean green, I'm sorry. Green? Oh, okay. Um, uh, I've learned very much to, um, to try to be in touch with myself and uh, what I feel will work for me and um, and meet the needs I have. I've been on retreats where, um, very similar to uh, what you were describing, I was on a retreat and there was, I'm a city girl so I was in nature and there had been a snowstorm and I'm a big walker and I felt that walking in a mindful way was opening me up and also filling me up. And yet, I felt um, in my interview that this was judged as restlessness that I was not sitting through. And I lost the connection with myself in a very deep way. I mean, I sort of fell asleep because I felt I, I was doing something wrong. I had just been told that I was doing something wrong. And so I often find in um, 
and I happen to be going on a retreat um, next weekend, a Zen retreat that is all about chanting. And I'm not all about chanting, but I'm taking what you said along with me. But I feel in community, there can be a group think. And it's difficult for me to hold on to myself, particularly in silence, where I'm not necessarily connecting with others who are having the same experience, and therefore you can share, and there's something different about that. So um, I guess I'd love you to speak to that and, and that balancing. So you're bringing up a really, really important point, a really important point, because um, people are at different places. And, you know, meditation teachers or the person who's receiving your interview, they may or may not be attuned to what is actually true for you. They're attuned to what is right for them. And so what often is the case until a person has more lateral experiences is they tend to project what would be true for them onto the person that they're speaking to. Yeah. So it's, it's a kind of a normal thing. It, uh, and my experience of living in the monastery was is that we did that all the time. We all assumed that everybody if they were, if I had been doing that, what this other person was doing, it would be coming from this particular place, and so that must be where it's coming from in them. So rather than asking them or listening and hearing what they're having to say, you know, we can do that. So there's a really important thing that happens in community. One part is is a sense of a fabric of belonging that holds and supports. Another is a thing of challenging and projection, which is really painful to deal with and also really important to learn how to deal with. Because it's not always sweet. A community of people is not always a loving fabric that holds and supports. Sometimes what happens is is what you get is stuff that actually requires you to say, well, actually, that's not true for me, what you're saying. And I came here because I need to do what's true for me. I've got one retreat a year I go on. I live in the city and I am not wanting to be disrespectful. I hear what you're saying, but that's not true for me. Okay? And to hold that without splitting. Okay? Splitting the group. Splitting yourself. Splitting off from your own power. Splitting off from your own understanding but to hold your own truth in a situation where there isn't somebody who validates it, who agrees with it, or who sees that it is actually important. In fact, they say that it's wrong. That is brilliant practice. Not pleasant practice. Brilliant practice. Okay, so uh, what if the person who is doing that, the, the parts that aren't so loving and uh, um, what if that person is you? <laughs> what if it's almost always you, I guess? And 
it uh, and you you kind of have I mean I guess that kind of sounds a little schizophrenic when you say it like there's voices and whatnot but when it does feel like there's maybe you know the more I do this I feel like I see two selves or I see maybe what maybe I haven't been listening to my truth I guess for a very long time and now learning what may it, it may be I mean having that old self who is I guess maybe it's ego or whatever uh, trying you know really really strongly to oppose it and so there is that splitting um, and it, it's kind of unavoidable and I, I, I'd like to have maybe something solid that's a referee or a, you know some, something that I can kind of come, come to where uh, I get the two of them to just calm down and are able to communicate with each other and you know become friends and eventually yoke I guess so in all of that to me what I'm hearing is that you have a lot of self-awareness which is actually really important but it hasn't all resolved yet and so you know like what I was saying for myself one of the ways that I have learned how to deal with that is to go to a place where I feel like everything is welcome okay that's how I've learned how to resolve some of this stuff is I go to a place where it's all okay I don't have to get rid of one voice and build up another one and have them all speaking to each other. I go to a place where it's big enough and open enough and spacious enough where the whole mess, just exactly as it is, is completely welcome. And then when I relax in that space, then I develop more skillfulness to be responsive to the different components about what their needs are. And I become the one who negotiates, you know, what is needed to get these different conflicting needs met. And are these different conflicting needs actually coming from a place that I want to live from? Or are these conflicting needs remnants of old habits and belief systems and conditioning that actually is no longer serving? Just because they're voices doesn't mean that you need to believe them. Some of the voices are really best saying, thanks very much, I appreciate what you've had to say, I will listen very carefully, goodbye. <laughs> okay. So um, we're just about at pumpkin hour. Can we have one more question? Yeah, one more question. Can you pass that? <laughs> the question was how did I know that it was time to leave England I'm smiling because you've just opened up a massive can of worms and so I'm, I'm asking myself how much of this can of worms how many wigglies do we let out in a minute before five minutes to go <laughs> I knew that it was time to leave England 
when everything I had done, every effort that I had made to find a way to resolve the challenges that I was experiencing in that space were not heard, received, acknowledged, or validated, and in fact, transgressed. When that happened, a line was crossed. My trust that further communication would serve any useful purpose at all was broken. When I knew that my trust that useful communication was broken, I knew immediately it was time to leave England. Thank you. So um, I just, before I, I get up and walk out, I'd like to just maybe do a little chant. And as a way of just touching again into the tenderness of heart. And this chant actually is not traditionally chanted as a way of sharing blessings. But for me, what it is, is something that is so beautiful and so lovely and so soothing that I'd like this to be a way in which we can connect with the potency of what it is to come and share in this way and to share the goodness that comes with ourselves, with our families, with the people in the community who are not here, with the places in the world that are suffering, that need wisdom and compassion at this time. Okay? So let this chant be a vehicle for sharing metta and sharing the blessings of what we've done here together.
Thank you for your welcome and your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.